I want to invite you to have a seat. As you do, you can grab your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Hebrews. If you are using the hard black Bible in front of you, that is on, we're going to be right on page 1187. Also, I'm going to dismiss Hubtown Kids this morning. And so if you are ages uh, 3 to 5, uh, you're going to be in the blue station. You're going to be heading over here to, to Mr. Brian. And this morning, you're, you're going to be learning about a little girl and a poor, frail lady. You're going to be learning about Jairus' daughter. What a wonderful story. If you are ages uh, 6 up to 5th grade, you're going to be exiting to my right, your left, and joining the Hubtown Kids Gray Station. They're going to be learning this important question that uh, you guys will never ask the kids unless you're a teacher. Shame on you. I'm not above public shaming. No, I'm just kidding. I know you are asking. We're working together. We want our kids to know and love Jesus. And so we're, we're, we're asking them these sort of questions. We're catechizing them. What's the question for this week? Why must the Redeemer be truly human? That in human nature, he might be on our behalf, perfectly, or perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. I'll read that again. Question, why must the Redeemer be truly human? That in human nature he might, on our behalf, perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. Be sure to ask a, a child this week, what a wonderful, glorious truth. Uh, and that's been so encouraging to watch our kids just soak up uh, this, uh, this information about God. And uh, what, what a joy it is to see that. So you've got your Bibles open to the book of Hebrews. You're on page 11. Uh, 87. We've been there for several weeks, uh, and we will finish out 1187 today and move on to 1188 in the coming weeks. Um, yes, we're going to be at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I want to just help you to see the, the, the structure so far of this text that we're jumping into today. It, it comes at a point in time. It has a context. What's the, uh, what's the context? Well, this is the first crescendo, if you will, since the promise, or I'm sorry, the premise has been given. Really, up until this point, there's not really been any call to action. This pastor, as we have referred to him as, he has been expositing the truths of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's been working to help us understand him in a way that we haven't really seen him before, at least not at this point in time in history. And so now he transitions, not from expositing Jesus and helping us to, to see him uncovered before our eyes, but now he is pointing out what has for many of us become incredibly obvious, that there's something that we now need to do in response. There's something that needs to take place. And so beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1, he's begun to load the cannonball. He's firmly nestled it down in the breach of this cannon. And now in the following verses, 5 to 14, finishing out the chapter, he's pointed the muzzle toward our souls. And now the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will unleash this first cannonball volley in our direction. And so I have one word to say as we get started this morning. Incoming. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Let's see what the Word of God has to say to us this morning. Therefore... We must pay attention or pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? 
It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, our prayer is simple at this point in time. We ask that you bless the reading of your word. We've not gathered here to hear me preach. We've not gathered even necessarily to hear each other sing. Father, we've gathered this morning to hear your word and to have it applied to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that that would take place right now. We ask it in hope and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. This passage comes on the heels of an exposition of Christ, raising him up. And now it turns to call us to take personal responsibility. And the personal responsibility that it calls us to is the main idea. The main idea for you this morning, hopefully on the screen, is this. Be careful not to drift from the gospel. Be careful not to drift from the gospel. As we walk through the text this morning, I think you'll see three reminders concerning this great salvation, concerning this great gospel that are rising to the top. We could really break it up into three. Here they are. The danger of drifting. The danger of drifting. Second, the promise of punishment. The promise of punishment. And third, the sureness of salvation. The sureness of salvation. We'll start by looking at verse number one and revealing the danger of drifting. Hebrews chapter two, verse one says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Therefore, you've heard it a thousand times. Uh, pastors can alliterate. They can use, uh, 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 they can use um, this little slogan here as well. When you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is it there for? Well, remember, it's pointing us back to chapter one, and it's saying, because of all this, because of the last few sermons that we've heard, because of the last 14 verses, now you need to do this. Chapter one has established something for us. God's highest and final communication with us has come to us in the person of his very son. And the son has a better name than the angels. Now because of all that, we need to take action. We need to do something about it. And he's referring to a group of people. He's saying we, he's not saying you, he's saying we. The people of God, the covenant saints of Christ who have been purchased by his blood. What must we do? We have to do something. Because of this, therefore, together, we're gonna consider something. What we will consider, what will we do? We'll consider what we've heard. What have we heard again? All of chapter one. We've heard the gospel. We've heard the good news from God the Father sending his son, declaring his son to be our Messiah, our Lord, our Savior, our Creator, our Sustainer, better than angels. In other words, what have we heard? We've heard the gospel. And what are we to do now that we've heard this gospel? We are to pay attention. We're to pay attention. It has the idea of giving space in your mind to something. And it's more than that. It's not just giving space in your mind, but it's getting something in your hands. Because we think this certain way, because we're giving our attention to something, it consumes us. It's a present infinitive, which means it's saying keep on paying closer attention. Maybe you're familiar in chapter 10 of this same book. The author says, 
don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but all the more, continue doing that all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's kind of the same thrust in this passage here. We're to pay attention. Not start paying attention. He's saying you already are paying attention, but don't stop paying attention and continue all the more, more and more as you see the day approaching. It's kind of the same thing there. Now, but it's also posted for us in comparative terms. Near the end of Moses' life there in Deuteronomy chapter 32, God told Moses to write a song. I'm glad God doesn't tell most of us to write songs. He goes on to say after he's written the song, now I want you to stand and before the congregation and I want you to sing the song. So Moses does. And at the end of that, this is what Moses says. At the end of the song that recounts all of God's grace and promise that he's given to the Israelites there in the wilderness, this is what Moses says at the end. Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, referencing his song, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but it's your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You see this language that we see in verse one, much closer, pay much closer attention. He's comparing what we should be responding, how we should be responding to the message of Jesus Christ. He's comparing that to this message that had been given by angels to Moses, to the people. How much greater Are we to compare, or how are we to pay attention? Much, much greater, much closer attention. As in, you had better pay attention to what angels delivered to Moses and to the Israelites in the wilderness. In this comparison, remember, just like in last week, what the author is doing is not trying to step on the law and push it down in order to make the law of Christ and this new gospel message that's going forward to make it look greater by stepping on the law, not in the slightest. But if we were to pay attention to the law given to God or by God to Moses, how much more should we pay attention to the law that has been given by Jesus to us? You better pay better attention. And why should we pay attention to it? Lest we drift away from it. Drift away. It has the idea of our predisposition to drift off course in the sense of maybe a ship, a ship drifting off course because of the current or headwinds. It's used of such a thing as a ring slipping off the finger. Probably all of us have suffered in some way by losing some sort of necklace or, or ring or Phone out of our pocket, it slipped away, it drifted away, maybe even in a way that we didn't even recognize it until maybe hours later. We've all done that. It can also be used of, of somebody maybe drinking or, or eating and, the, and that food or that water or whatever liquid going down the wrong tube. Something's gone awry, something's gone the wrong way. This idea of drifting away, it's really been spoken of well by one commentator when they said, one need not be violently opposed to the message to suffer loss, speaking of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need not be violently opposed to that message to suffer loss. One only need to drift away from it. The warning for us today is clear. There is a danger for us to drift away. 
And now we begin to understand more explicitly what the purpose of this book intended by the Holy Spirit for us. What's the purpose of this great sermon? Well, in part, there is a negative downward momentum that's developing, not just in the church that receives this, but also in our lives as well. This drawing away, a falling away from the gospel first declared in power by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a huge theme for the book of Hebrews. It's also a huge theme in our own lives as well. Each of us that are in Christ can probably imagine a time in our lives where the fire for our love for God and our appreciation for our Savior was burning much, much brighter. And we hear the words in Revelation given to that church that was in error. You've left your first love. And then again, you're lukewarm. You used to be hot. And God would prefer that you be cold because now you're in the middle. You're lukewarm. The call to us is to keep a watch on ourselves unless we drift away from the gospel. How is this even possible? How can those who have been saved also drift away from the gospel? How can it lose its, its value in our eyes? There's this truth that is indwelling sin. That although we have been justified, when God looks at us, we have been justified. He sees the blood of Christ that covers us. And yet at the same time, on another level, we are still sinners. There's still this indwelling sin that the Spirit of God, by the power of God, in community with the people of God, gathered around the Word of God, we are being sanctified. We're being cleansed. And yet at the same time, we are both just and sinners. We've exited this state of able to not sin and into this state of we are still able to sin. Spirit of God lives in us. We are new creations, and yet also we are sinful creatures. Perhaps what's most dangerous about drift is that it is imperceptible at first. We don't even recognize how far we've come until we look down, look back, and begin to see how dangerous drift truly is. We've all seen this swimming at the ocean. Most of us have paid our dues to the beach this year. We'll come again another time. We've all walked out into the water. We've swam a bit. Maybe we boogie boarded and looked for shells or whatever it was. And then we looked back up to find our party. And where are they? Well, we've drifted away slowly, not quickly, not in any manner that would, that would cause us alarm, but slowly and in imperceptible degrees, we have drifted away. We've got to pay attention. I want to read for you. The rules and precepts that were adopted by a prestigious school in 1646. Number one, you had to agree to these to become a student there and to be accepted. Number one, when any scholar is able to read the classics, to speak and read Latin, and decline perfectly Greek paradigms of nouns and verbs, then may he be admitted into the college. Ain't nobody going to school. <laughs> if that's still today. Some of you homeschoolers, maybe. 
Number two, everyone shall consider the main end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Few of us might be able to go. Number three, seeing the Lord giveth wisdom, everyone shall seriously by prayer and secret uh, seek wisdom from God. Four, everyone shall so exercise himself in reading the scriptures twice a day that they be ready to give an account of their proficiency therein, both in theoretical observations of language and logic and in practice or practical and spiritual truths. Which school was this? I can promise you they don't hold to this any longer. This is Harvard College. Established in 1646. And now if you were to operate by these in your life and be willing to adopt these rules and precepts, you would be banned from the school, as it were. It's sad. How imperceptible, how slow the drift truly, truly is. Drifting, ignoring salvation, Forgetting the gospel, it's really something that has been, is done by those who once claimed Christ, but are in danger of losing sight of Christ. I believe this is what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he penned Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. I'll read that for you today. He says, I'm astonished, Galatian church. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are now turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so say I now again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Cursed. Paul is considering this church that knows and loves Jesus, understands the gospel, and he's saying, something's taking place. You're drifting away. You're quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ, and you're turning to another gospel. What is the gospel? That God, the holy creator of this universe to whom we are accountable will judge all sinners and we, all mankind, are in fact sinners. And yet, he responds to our sin by sending his only son who died on the cross for our sins and to all, hear me, all who would turn from their sin and place their faith in Jesus would receive an entire pardon. Their life would be cleansed, their sin washed away. This is the gospel, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. This is the gospel. And the apostle Paul is saying, you're leaving that. You're drifting away from that. Jesus Christ has, not become, has, has lost his center point in your life. You've been attracted to something else. You've desired in your own life to maybe earn some of this salvation. Whatever the case, you've deserted him. You've drifted away. What a dangerous, dangerous reality for us. Our hearts are prone to wander. As we transition, I want 
to, I, want to, I want you to notice one of the ways that the author recognizes that we drift away, or at least avoid drifting away, and that is number two, by remembering the promise of punishment. By remembering the promise of punishment. Let me just say this quickly. This is a doctrine that has fallen on hard times. That God would punish sin. It's something that we like to shy away from. In some ways, we perceive that it doesn't build the church anymore. I can assure you that the doctrine that God will punish sin is a reality that will, in fact, build the true church. You say, well, that's a lesser motivation. It's a real motivation. That the God of this universe that gives you breath right now, that has commanded and demands something of you, that you would spurn him. Brother and sister, friend, be afraid. There is a promise of punishment. And one of the ways that we keep ourselves from drifting is by remembering this promise. Verse 2, what does it say? For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. We've already established that angels have often been used as communicators of God's message to God's people. They didn't speak on their own behalf. They spoke on behalf of the Father. And what did they give? Well, here he's referencing the law. This law declared by angels proved to be reliable. This is a very legal term. Much of this language here is legalese. The law was binding. In other words, it's fully valid. The message that was given by the angels wasn't just true, but it was good. It was right. It was exactly what God had given. Not a jot or tittle had passed away. Binding. Reliable. And it had provision attached to it. And that was the proper punishment of wrongdoers so that every transgression against what God had commanded has been dealt with or will be dealt with. It's been said, and I like it, God doesn't wink at sin. He's promised to pay every, or to, to mete out justice for every single sin committed. And you'll either bear that weight of that Justification, or Jesus will. You'll either pay that price, or Jesus has. It's interesting here as you think about this. Allegedly, the angel Gabriel gave to Muhammad a message. A message that did not prove to be fully valid. Not binding. Similarly, an angel referred to as Moroni, he gave uh, the Book of Mormon to Joseph Smith, or at least parts of it. And neither of these have proved to be valid. None of these have proved themselves. Both of them are non-starters exactly for, for the reasons we read just a moment ago, Galatians chapter 1. It's another gospel. And so they're unreliable. They don't speak the truth about God. They don't speak the truth about the Son. And yet we have a message that is just as sure as the message given to the prophets in the Old Testament. And it's even greater because it is the very fulfillment of all that had been. It's the final communication. It's reliable. But in this comparison, he's referencing back to the Old Testament. He's referencing back to the law. And he's saying that word was reliable. 
and every disobedience, every transgression was punished. Think through the law that God had given. Think through all the transgressions and the punishments that would go along with each other. All the way up until capital punishment. Having your name, in a sense, blotted out from the community of, of, the, of the saints there in the Old Testament. He goes on to say, compare this reality. That the law that was given in the Old Testament, it was valid it was proved reliable, and every single time a transgression came against that, it was, justice was met out. And now in comparison, he's saying, how shall we now escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now he's changed. This is a rabbinic tool or a device going, arguing from the lesser to the greater. If in this lesser, not worthless, but lesser situation, justice was done and served, how much more with this greater salvation that has been declared to us through the Son? Not just some random angel, the very Son. How will you escape if you neglect such a great salvation? I love that language. Such a great salvation in contrast to the salvation offered in the Old Testament. That wasn't final. It wasn't complete. As we'll learn later in this book, nobody is saved by the shedding of blood from bulls and from goats. And yet in Christ, he's not continually making this sacrifice. He made one sacrifice and he sat down. First try. He's not continued and continued and continued to try to finish what he started. He finished it, and he sat down. It's a great salvation, and that's a great understatement. It's such a great salvation. And here, human language fails for us to actually describe and understand what it's trying to give us. It's such a great salvation. And how shall we escape if we neglect? What does it mean to neglect? What well, goes right along with drifting? It means to ignore through apathy or to not care about something. You could think about 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. The same word is used when Paul, speaking to his protege, Timothy, he says, do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for in so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The Apostle Paul is challenging him. You've got some talent, kid. Don't neglect it. You've got something that many others wish they had. Don't neglect it. Continue to develop it. It was given you by God, but through prophecy and the laying on of hands. But practice this. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress, which is as sure as the rising of the sun tomorrow. Don't neglect it. Don't forget about it. Don't sleep in. Pursue it. Don't avoid it. Don't forget about it. How will you escape if you do? It's a rhetorical question. How will you go unpunished? If God would punish anyone who broke his transgression or transgressed against his law in the Old Testament, how much more now will he? If you neglect such a great salvation, 
Really, this speaks to the urgency of repentance and of evangelism. Later on in this book, the Old Testament is quoted as saying, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This morning, whether you're dabbling in sin, having claimed the name of Christ, having turned from your sin and turned from your idols to Jesus, and now maybe again you've turned back, if you hear the voice of God, would you repent? Today, if you hear his voice, there's an urgency. If you would neglect, you would never neglect the the testimony of an angel. Why would you neglect the testimony of the Son of God? Surely you wouldn't. How will you escape if you do that? There's an urgency for repentance. And brother, sister, there's an urgency for evangelism. The rate at which fellow Marylanders Tri-staters are entering off, or are heading off into eternity is alarming. And they need the gospel. And so there's an urgency for us to share that good news with them. And there's an urgency for you when you hear that message of the gospel of good news of Jesus Christ, that you act today. If you hear the voice of God speaking to your heart through his word open this morning, repent and trust Jesus. It's the message of the gospel. Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of of, uh, camel hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were coming out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Christians are often called narrow-minded. That's how we're described. And when you read a passage like this, when you hear the, the words of Jesus Christ, when you actually hear the exclusivity in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've got you've to just go with it. Let them call us what they will. But let me say this. It's no more narrow-minded of the Christian to call people to repent and trust in Jesus than it is for a security guard to demand that everybody exit a burning building that's about to collapse. It's no more narrow-minded It's no more hateful. In fact, in its essence, it's love. There's an urgency that we have, not only to repent in our hearts to God, but also to call others to repent. Why? How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Which, by the way, that's been declared from this pulpit for many, 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 many years. How will we escape? Rhetorical question, answer, you won't. You won't. 
Romans chapter 1, verses 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They won't repent. They don't want to. And the wrath of God is revealed against all of their ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. John chapter 3, verses 35 and 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What do we see painted here? That punishment is real. That God's justice and his wrath are not absolved by his love. But both exist at the same time. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You need to be reminded, punishment is real. God's wrath is real. There are some who may say this morning, I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. I just can't believe in that. While I understand where you're coming from, let me just humbly ask you to consider the arrogance of that position. That you would look God in the face. The God who created everything. The God who is truth and is light and is righteousness and justice emanates from him and you'll look at him and call him unjust. I won't even give you the benefit of believing in you or submitting to you because you're doing something that I don't approve of. Consider the arrogance of that and repent. There's a possibility of drifting, brothers and sisters. And it's a dangerous, dangerous possibility. But what are we to do? Well, we've been warned of the wrath to come. We've been warned of the punishment that is pending. And yet that's not where we're left in this passage. We're to be motivated by fear, yes. But we're also to be motivated by hope. And our hope is in the sureness of salvation. This is point number three. We see it in verses three, at the second half of three, and verse four as well. The surety or sureness of salvation. There's a temptation to ne neglect the message of salvation. But we can't drift away from it. We have to recognize that if we neglect it, there is a punishment. And if we, re if we accept it, if we give our, our attention to it, then there is salvation to obtain. How can we be sure of our salvation? And how can we be sure that our salvation is better than what's offered in the Old Testament? How can we be sure that it's better than what this world has to offer? I'll give you four reasons if you're taking notes this morning. How can we be sure of our salvation? Number one, our salvation is rooted in history. I'm not going to give you a chapter verse. but I'm going to show you that he's about to tell us about some historical facts He's going to walk through some historical facts for us. He's going to tell us that this gospel that we love, this gospel that is held by this church and has been held by churches like ours for 2,000 years, this tradition, it's rooted in history. It's commonplace to argue that faith and reality need not be connected. This idea really has crept into many Christian denominations, and it's been the bane of the last several hundred years. This idea that we can really just kind of unhitch faith from reality. 
Many years ago on a PBS special, Harold Kushner, he's an author and theologian, I think he's a rabbi as well, he was asked whether the Jewish patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were actually real persons. Do you know what he said? This isn't a beat down on him, but this is what his response was. It doesn't make any difference. The impact of their stories on us is real. They have molded our history, and that is all that matters. Whether or not a tortoise ever raced a hare doesn't matter. It'll still give you encouragement to run a little bit faster and not give up. As you consider this fable, the power in the tortoise and the hare is actually in the story. However, for the gospel, the power is in the reality that it actually took place. There's no power in just this idea of good news divorced from this real gospel that Jesus came, that he died after having lived a perfect life. He was buried and he rose again, demonstrating to us all that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father on our behalf. This may let the air out of your sails, but Captain Planet isn't real. If you grew up in the 80s, 90s, Captain Planet's not real, but he did teach us to conserve water and not litter, and maybe we're better citizens of this country because of that. Some of you will be really sad. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, they're not real, but they did teach us to love pizza and martial arts. Dora is not real, and yet some of you can speak a little Spanish because of this figment of your imagination. You love exploring and you love Spanish. Power Rangers taught us, well, they didn't really teach us anything. But the gospel is different than all of those things. The gospel isn't about teaching us a better way to live, how to throw away our trash and conserve energy. The gospel is not a story that has power. The gospel is a history. It's a reality. The Apostle Paul doesn't tell us a story about a tortoise and a hare, about little Bo Peep and her little lost sheep. He tells us a story rooted in history. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what does he say? And if Christ has not been raised, if this isn't a reality, then our preaching is in vain. It's worthless. And your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if this is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Do you get this understanding? Our salvation is sure because it's anchored, it's rooted in history, not in a story. Does it matter if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob existed? You had better believe it. Even more so, does it matter that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh and dwelt among us? We beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You better believe that that matters. And so one reason why our salvation is sure is because it's rooted in history. It's anchored in history. But more than that, it's been declared by the Lord. It's been declared by the Lord. Look at verse 3, the second part. This gospel, this gospel that gives us hope It was declared at first by the Lord. This great salvation was proclaimed by Jesus Christ himself. It had been prophesied, yes, in the Old Testament, but the beginning of the gospel's proclamation in clarity and in fulfillment, it came in the Messiah. It came in Jesus Christ as he walked this earth. It's been a while 
70-some sermons in Mark, but in the very beginning, we looked at what several years ago? What did we see? Jesus arrives on the scene, and according to Mark, the first thing that we have him saying is what? Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And so not only is our salvation anchored and rooted in history, historical facts, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the, also the proclamation of Jesus Christ. What did he say when he got here? He told us to repent. He told us the kingdom of God is at hand. He told us to trust the good news that he would be our sacrifice, that he would pay our sin debt. It's great salvation. It's great because of Jesus, and he declared it. And remember, it was declared first by the Lord. Who is the Lord? It's the only begotten of the Father, the one that we've just spent several weeks looking at in Hebrews chapter 1. He is the Son and not an angel, and he's the one declaring this message. It wasn't just declared about him. It was declared by him. And so one, it's rooted in history. It's anchored in history. Two, it was declared first by the Lord. And three, it was attested by the apostles. What does it say there? And it was attested to us by those who heard. Both the writer of Hebrews and the readers of Hebrews did not know Jesus. They hadn't walked with him physically in this life. They knew him by faith in their hearts. They knew him through his word. They knew him through the gospel message that had been given to them by the apostles. But they didn't know him. Neither, we assume, did the writer of Hebrews as well. But it says it was attested to us by those who heard. The word attested, again, is a legal term. These apostles, these early Christians, these first Christians, they testified and they proved the sureness of the gospel message for us. How did they do this? Many, many, many ways. We could see just their testimonies in their lives, how they lived out the gospel. Maybe chief among all the ways that they attested this is by giving their own lives for it, literally becoming obedient to the point of death. They saw the risen Lord, and they died without recanting. They literally died saying this, Jesus is Lord, he is risen. This message, if it were a lie, it would have ended at knife point. It would have ended at the stake. It would have ended at the mouth of the lions, but it didn't. It's, it's come to us. It was attested to us by those who heard by those who beheld his glory, glory on the eyes. They saw it and they testified. And so it's a historical fact. It was preached by the Son of God, our Lord, and it was attested to us by the apostles, the early Christians. And now finally, icing on the cake, last nail in the coffin, how can we be sure that our salvation is in fact sure? It was verified by God the Father. It was verified by God the Father. Look at verse four. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. We've got the testimony of Jesus. We've got the testimony of the apostles. And now we've got the testimony of God the Father. 
who also, like the Son, in a sense, who took on flesh and stepped into existence, God the, God the Father works in existence, signs, wonders, and various miracles. Not only did the apostles bear witness, not only did the apostles testify, not only were they a martyr, which means to testify, but so was the Father. And what is his testimony? That this salvation message is true. Signs, wonders, and miracles. They're basically the same things. That's kind of a a tagline statement that's used throughout the New Testament about what would take place when God was working in the church. We see it all through the book of Acts and many other places in the New Testament books as well. They're basically the same thing, though, but they each have a slightly different angle or nuance. You've got to be careful here, but they kind of all could, they all kind of do the same thing, but they all kind of have like a specialty. And so what a sign, what is a sign? Well, it is a miracle and it is a wonder, but a sign, the purpose of a sign is to verify something. The purpose of a sign is to verify something. What's a wonder? Well, it's less about purpose and more about style. And yes, God has style. It's about the marvelous nature of what God is doing and how it's literally awesome. It's full of awe. Now, what's the difference between sign and wonders? They're they're the same thing. They can each be used to describe the exact same activity, and yet signs are more about verification and wonders are more about just getting your jaw to drop. What about miracles? What are they all about? Well, again, they're the same thing as signs and they're the same thing as wonders. But miracles are more about just demonstrating the raw power of God. As he breaks into existence and he does something. Now, when we think about this, some of us might come away a little bit confused when we read this passage. It says that God bore witness to this salvation by signs, wonders, and various miracles. And we might be tempted to think that in our personal lives, we also need signs, wonders, and and miracles in order to to really become sure for us that we really are saved. Well, I need to do these great things. I need to do these miracles. And that's actually not the point. The point that the author is trying to help us to see is that these things have established this salvation. It's already done. So to sure, we're not waiting for another sign. We're not waiting for another miracle. We're not waiting for another wonder. It's already completed. It's already been attested to. God the Father has already stamped it and said, this is in fact my son and I'm well pleased in him. He's the lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. Mark chapter two, verses one through 12. And when he, speaking of Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. He's preaching the gospel that was attested by the Lord. So follow me. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let him down. They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their heart, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. How can, can, who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned him within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? It's a good question, Jesus. Which is more difficult? 
But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to, on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. And what happened? And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. We never saw a sign like that. Jesus just said that he forgave that dude his sins, and I wouldn't have believed that his sins were actually forgiven unless I would have seen the verification and him actually standing up and walking out. I, I, I wouldn't have been able to really fathom the power of God wielded by this man, aside from him demonstrating this raw power by this miracle of giving him his, his ability to walk back. My jaw, I just wasn't impressed. My jaw wasn't on the floor when I saw Jesus. When I heard him say that he could forgive sins, I was shocked. And when he demonstrated that awesome action of giving him his, uh, his legs back, what an amazing sign, what an amazing wonder, what an amazing miracle that truly, truly was. What has God the Father done for us as we consider this salvation and the question of whether it is sure for us, he has attested to it. He has verified it through signs, wonders, and miracles. And that's not it. That's not it all. That's not all. It also says, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. By gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What purpose does that serve? Well, at least in part, to verify for us that the gospel is true. Which, by the way, a part of the gospel was that when Jesus was leaving, he was sending the comforter, was he not? And for all of us who have received a distribution of sorts of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the gift that now also comes with that, we all can see and say in our hearts, that not only do we see these historical facts, but we also have experienced this deposit that our Savior has promised us. Theologians argue as to whether or not this is a reference to the actual gifts of the Holy Spirit or this is the giving of the Holy Spirit. And really, I think it's important that uh, we know what the answer is, but at the same time, what's the difference? We have been promised the Holy Spirit. We have received the Holy Spirit. And furthermore, in that receiving of the Holy Spirit, we have received gifts, each of us. And this serves to verify and confirm this great salvation that we have been offered, that is a sure one, that gives us hope. It's anchored in reality. It's the same gospel that was preached by Jesus himself. It's not changed. We're not gonna change it. There are other gospels that others are peddling but they're false gospels. They're not true gospels. The scripture says those gospels and those who wield them are accursed. We share the same one that Jesus had. We share the same one that the apostles had. Our faith is built on the apostles and the prophets. As we read about in Ephesians. And our faith is built on the fact that the father attested to the gospel by signs, wonders, and miracles. And what's the greatest? What's the, the greatest of all of the miracles that God the Father has accomplished on our behalf before our eyes? Is it not the resurrection of Jesus Christ? This is the validation for us. 
One author said, in light of all of these things that we've looked at today, salvation, for some reason or another, has for some lost its charm. The person who is drifting, neglecting God's salvation, has lost the wonder of it. The most exciting word ever spoken no longer excites. One cannot help but think of the ground mentioned in Matthew chapter 13, verses 19 to 20. This is the parable of the soils. The message goes out, and for some it springs up, and then it's choked out. And for others it springs up, but then it withers away. And for others there's no springing up at all. And yet there's some... There's some ground that when the seeds of the gospel are thrown onto them, they not only begin to grow, they not only sprout up, but they last. They don't drift away or wither away in the light of the sun. They don't get choked out, be choked out by the changing winds or currents. Persecution doesn't stop them. Distraction doesn't overtake them. They're not disenchanted. They do exactly what the book of Hebrews wants them to do. They look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of their faith. As the sermon comes to a close this morning, I want to ask you a question. And it's a little bit funny, but it's also very serious. Where's Blanky? Where's Teddy? Where's your favorite G.I. Joe? Where's that box of baseball cards? There was a time in your life where there was an object that was so precious to you that you knew where it was at all times. For me, it was wrinkles. He was a dog. He was a stuffed animal. He went everywhere with me. He was my best friend. I couldn't fathom my life ever not being joined together with Wrinkles, the dog. And I remember thinking not that long ago about Wrinkles, and my heart was broken. I have no idea where he is. No idea. Not the faintest idea. What's become of him? My love for Wrinkles has drifted away. And your love for Blanky, and your love for Teddy, and your love for whoever, whatever, often it fades away as well. The truth is that whatever it is that your heart was attached to, that you loved, it wasn't infinitely valuable as Jesus is. Compare the two. You may misplace your blankie, but brother, sister, do not misplace the gospel. Do not misplace your relationship with Jesus. It's of infinite more value. So what are we to do? What's the main idea? Be careful not to drift from the gospel. Don't drift from it. And quickly as we close, let me just give you a couple practical ways on how we can not drift from the gospel. It's really keep studying Hebrews. We're to consider Jesus. This is how we don't drift from the gospel. Chapter 3, verse 1, it says, consider Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 13, exhort one another. Exhort them to do what? To consider Jesus. Exhort each other. Encourage, challenge each other to not forget about blanky, to not forget about wrinkles, and surely not to forget about Jesus. 
Chapter 4, verse 16 says, draw near the throne of grace because of Jesus. That's how we practically guard against drifting. We don't run from him. We run to him. Chapter 12, verse 2, same, passage, or same, same book, consider him who endured all the suffering that you're facing, all the distraction that you've been tempted with. Consider Jesus. How will you avoid drifting? You consider him who when he was tempted, when he was struggling, he did not give in. He endured to the end. That's how we'll not drift. Chapter, 20, uh, chapter 12, verse 25, the final one I'll point out. Do not refuse him who is speaking. This is a reference back to chapter one, verse one and two. God, who in time past spoke to us through the prophets, has now spoken to us through his son. And verse 25 of chapter 12 is saying, don't refuse him who is speaking. And so we'll end with this. Today, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear that message, if something is stirring in your heart as we discuss Jesus and we exposit what this passage was to us to understand about the eternal begotten Son of God, then don't harden your heart. So I want to just invite you to just take a moment. We don't do this every week, but I want to invite you just to bow your heads and to close your eyes. I want you to, just, I want you to try to put all distractions away from you. I want you to consider Jesus this morning, the author and perfecter of our faith. I want you to consider Jesus who endured the cross, who endured temptation on our behalf, and yet he was without sin. I want you to consider the one who has preached a better message. Do you hear his voice this morning? Is he calling you to repentance? Has idolatry crept in? Has some sort of secret sin overtaken you? Repent. Believe the gospel. The, the, the scriptures are so clear. They couldn't be any more clear. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And furthermore, maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, this is the first time I've ever understood any of this heard the name of Jesus, I've heard about the gospel, but I never really understood what it means. But today you're hearing his voice. My encouragement to you would be, do not harden your heart, but do the very thing that Jesus called you to do. Repent. Can this good news actually be true? Yes. Believe it. Turn to him for forgiveness and you'll not be disappointed. Father, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to understand who Jesus is to a greater degree. We're thankful that we can hear your voice. You're speaking to us today, not through me, not through a song, but through your word as it's open and through your spirit who is with us confirming these things in our hearts and minds. Father, we pray that the one that's far from you this morning, that they would hear your voice, they would repent, and they would believe the gospel. Father, we pray for the ones who are wandering, who are drifting, who have let go of the gospel, that afresh they would grab a hold of that great truth this morning, that they'd be nourished by it. We pray that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.